0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 37, the book of Matthew, chapter 10, the second continuation. The topic of what Christ signified when he called himself the Son of Man is how we ended our last lesson. Now, in the Torah class study of the book of Daniel, lessons 20 and 21, I spent extensive time explaining two important Biblical terms, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Now you can go to those lessons to get more in-depth understanding, but for now just understand and know that despite how it might sound to us, The Son of God is actually about Yeshua's humanity. And the Son of Man points us to His deity. So in the Gospels, when we read about Jesus speaking of Himself as the Son of Man, He is saying that He is divine, although clearly no one including his original 12 disciples seemed initially to comprehend his intended meaning now without doubt di- without doubt christ is using the term son of man in the sense it was meant in daniel chapter 7 let's take a minute to revisit that passage in daniel chapter 7 verses 8 to 14 we read this While I was considering the horns, another horn sprang up among them a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. In this horn were eyes, like human eyes, and a mouth speaking arrogantly, and as I watched, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient One took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head was like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames with wheels of burning fire. A stream of fire flowed from His presence. Thousands, thousands ministered to Him. Millions, millions stood before Him. Then the court was convened and books were opened. kept watching. Then because of the arrogant words which the horn was speaking, I watched as the animal was killed and its Body was destroyed and it was given over to be burned up completely. Now, as for the other animals, their rulership was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a time and for a season. And I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man. And he approached the ancient one and he was led into his presence, and to him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His rulership is an eternal rulership that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now clearly this Son of Man is divine because first He was invited into Heaven and was led into the very presence of the Ancient One, God. Second, God gave him a kingdom that would never be destroyed. He also gave him personal rulership over it, accompanied with glory. Now, I've asked myself on many occasions why this connection seems so clear to many of us in modern times but it just seemed to fly right over the heads of the the Jewish people in Christ's day. Why when Daniel was such a popular book then and why when many or most Jews felt they were living in the end times and the many miraculous things that A divine Messiah would do on earth was present, and and why when other prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah spoke about the end times, why were even the Jewish religious authorities oblivious to Yeshua's allusion to the Son of Man and were witness to the growing number of His miracles that they saw with their own eyes? Is seeing really believing? From a Biblical perspective, Isaiah provides the surest answer in Isaiah 6, 5-13. One of the seraphim flew to me with a glowing coal in his hand, which he had taken from, with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Here, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is gone, your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of Adonai saying, Whom should I send? Who will go for us? And I answered, I'm here, send me. And he said, Go, tell this people, yes, you hear, but you don't understand. You certainly see, but you don't get the point. Make the heart of this people sluggish with fat, stop up their ears, shut their eyes, Otherwise, seeing with their eyes and hearing with their ears and understanding with their hearts, they might repent and be healed. I asked Adonai, How long? And he answered, Until cities become uninhabited ruins, houses without human presence, the land utterly wasted, until Adonai drives the people far away, and the land is one vast desolation. If even a tenth of the people remain, it will again be devoured. But like a pistachio tree or an oak, whose trunk remains alive after its leaves fall off, the Holy Seed will be its trunk. Now, The context of this passage has to do with the conquering of Israel by the Assyrians on account of the people of Israel having gone far astray and thus becoming blind and deaf to God's word, and disregarding His many warnings to them, but it also applied to the circumstances of the exile of Judah that would happen 150 years after that, and even to the eventual dispersing of the Jews late in the first century A.D. by the Romans. It also has applied to uh, has application to the end times that's still ahead of us. The point is that it is. God, who stopped up the ears and shut the eyes of the Jewish people, such that they couldn't accept what Jesus did and said. And this was a punishment for their unfaithfulness and for their rebellion. And even from a less spiritual and a more practical matter, believers today, you know, we have all manner of resources available to us along with the benefit of hindsight to grasp just who this strange holy man from Nazareth actually was. We have scores of commentaries written by highly trained Bible scholars. We have libraries open to everyone, usually free of charge. Bibles are plentiful in supply, from very inexpensive to free published in dozens of languages. We have the Internet, with access to more easily attained information about the Bible and the Biblical times than was imaginable even 20 years ago. Not to mention amazing computer-based Bible programs that can instantly search the Scriptures for words and phrases. It presents us with dozens of Bible versions at our fingertips. They have built-in language translators and morphologies. Jews in the first century didn't possess any of this. They didn't even have Bibles. The wealthy may have possessed one complete book of the Bible, but that was as much a a luxury item that represented social status as it was an actual source of study. But in general, the common Jewish people only knew what little they did learn at their local synagogue, some of which may have had a Torah scroll. And as we've already discussed, what they learned was taught through the filter of tradition. So it's no wonder that the Jewish people that Yeshua encountered simply could not comprehend what and who stood in their midst. Bottom line, Yeshua was certainly revealing that He was indeed Daniel's mysterious divine Son of Man because He constantly made that connection. The Jewish people couldn't seem to see it. And as I've shown you, a goodly part of the Bible academic world can't either. (laughs) Because they too have ears stopped up and eyes closed due to their lack of trust. Let's read a little bit more of Matthew chapter 10. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We'll be on page. 1235, 1235 1235 we're going to start reading at verse 24 starting at verse 24 a talmid a disciple is not greater than his rabbi a slave is not greater than his master it is enough for a talmid that he become like his rabbi a slave like his master now if people have called the head of the house baal how much more will they malign the members of his household? So do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be uncovered or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What is whispered into your ear, proclaim it on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are powerless to kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenom. Aren't sparrows sold for next to nothing too for an Assyrian? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's consent. Now as for you, every hair on your head has been counted. So do not be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me in the presence of others, I will acknowledge in the presence of my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Don't suppose that I have come to bring peace to the land. It's not peace I have come to bring, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against your mother, A daughter-in-law against your mother-in-law, so that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Whoever loves his father and mother more than he loves Me is not worthy of Me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than he loves Me is not worthy of Me. Anyone who does not take up his execution stake and follow Me is not worthy of Me. Whoever finds his own life will lose it but the person who loses his life for My sake will find it. Whoever receives you is receiving Me, and whoever receives Me is receiving the One who sent Me. Anyone who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive the reward a prophet gets. And anyone who receives a tzaddik, a holy man, because he is a tzaddik, Will receive the reward as sodic gets. Indeed, if someone gives you just a cup of cold water to these little ones because he is my disciple, yes, I tell you, he will certainly not lose his reward. Now, a few verses earlier, some of what is said in verses 24 and 25 is straightforward, but some of it is a little bit difficult to untangle. When Yeshua speaks of the 12 disciples' relationship to himself, he is simply he simply makes a rather easily understood proverb. A disciple's not above his rabbi. A slave is not above his master. His 12 disciples certainly would not have been surprised with this comment or they wouldn't have disagreed with it in any way. Other New Testament translations say that the disciple is not above his teacher and the complete uh, the, uh, King James Version says that a disciple is not above his master. Now let's take a quick look at the Greek so that we, we get a little sharper sense of this proverb. In the first half of this verse the word is didiskalos, didiskalos. and while the term is generic for teacher in the New Testament it is invariably used to, u- to mean a teacher of the things of God. So for English speakers in the 21st century, the way to understand it is this, a disciple is not above the one he follows who teaches the Word of God. The second half of verse 24. Says a slave is not greater than his master, or some versions have it, a servant's not above his lord. Now the word translated as slave or master is doulos, doulos, and it means a purchased slave or maybe a bond servant. It could even be just an attendant, like a maid. So, it speaks of a person, no matter their exact circumstance, that serves someone in authority over them. The Greek word for Master is kurios, kurios, and it means the one to whom a person or a thing belongs. It involves a sense of ownership. So, for English speakers in the 21st century, we should understand this as meaning that a person who serves is not higher than the one he serves, because that person owns him. See in our day and age, the idea of an owned slave immediately conjures up a vision of a shameful time in Western history, when people from Africa were captured and sold to people of European descent to be used as slave labor. That is, we can't help but think when we hear those terms, slave, we can't help but think of race and bigotry. But that is not what the Bible's talking about here. There's no negative sense to the notion of being a servant or a slave of some kind. Christ even speaks of himself as being a servant, sometimes it's translated as slave, to his Father in heaven. Believers are instructed to view ourselves as servants or slaves to Jesus and to his Father. See, the idea is that we serve one who, from a spiritual standpoint, is a master above us because, in a very real sense, he owns us. Obviously, this is a positive. It's not meant as a negative. So we need to take what Christ has just said to the, to the twelve in that same light. Now, having prefaced what he is about to say in verse twenty-five with a simple proverb, in verse twenty-four he continues with. It is enough that a disciple becomes like his master. Again consulting the Greek, there are two terms we need to highlight. First is what it means to be like his master. The word translated to English as like or as in Greek is hos. hos. It does not mean to be the same as. It does not mean to be equal to. It means to be similar, to be of the same kind, to imitate someone or something. Thus, the twelve disciples are being told that even though Christ has granted them powers that are similar to what He bears, and they should use those powers in a similar way that He did, they are not He. Yeshua as their Master will always be the standard and the ideal to strive for, but in the end it is not fully attainable. Because no mere human will ever be who He uniquely is. Rather, says Christ, it's enough, it's sufficient, that the Master bear that rather the disciples bear similar traits that well represents the unmatchable traits of their master in other words despite everything i've been telling you he's saying everything i've been warning you about relax relax you don't have to try to be me See, I can remember my own father telling me, not too long before he passed away, of the day that he learned to relax in the Lord and how much easier life became as a result. did not that sound good? My father was a wonderful, godly man who took his faith in Christ very seriously. He was always striving to be kind and merciful and forgiving, yet we can also strive too hard, trying to be too good in our own strength, in our own will, seeking a kind of perfection or righteousness that just kind of keeps us full of anxiety, prevents us from having a feeling of a sustaining inner inner peace. This is not what our Lord Yeshua wants of us. His message to His twelve and to us is, relax in Him. His yoke is light. It is not an impossible burden to bear. We are not going to be judged harshly because we weren't able to be just like Him in every nuance, action, and thought. And yet, to relax in Him him doesn't give us license to become lazy or disobedient or to take our faith casually or to quit trying and just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. So the final words Verse 25 add a warning. If we're going to strive to imitate our master, as we should, then we're going to be seen by the public just as our master is seen. Thus says Jesus if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, okay, now a we'll pause here. What does that mean? See, technically, Baal-zebul is in Hebrew baal And besides Baal being the name of a false god we've read about in the Bible, in the ancient pantheon of gods, little B, Baal simply means lord or master. Just a generic term. It's got no religious context to it at all. Thus, Baal Zavul directly translates as, pay attention, directly translates as Lord or Master of the House. That's what it means. Thus, we literally have Yeshua saying, if they call the Master of the House, the Master of the House. Now, clearly, this makes little sense. Rather it is that in ancient Jewish culture the term the Lord of the house, Zevul, came to be a name or a title for Satan. So the best way to understand the meaning is, if they call the master of the house Satan, then they will also identify the members of Satan's household with him. And indeed, already back in Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty-four, we read of, uh, of concerning Yeshua exercising demons out of possessed people, that the Pharisees said to the impressed onlookers that only Satan can expel Satan's demons. You remember that? So more than implying that Yeshua's power and authority came from Satan. Beelzebul, and not from God, says Christ then, when the twelve disciples now armed with the abilities to do many of the same things that their master did when they actually go out and do them and they pronounce the Good News, some are going to accuse them of having their power come from Satan. I want to expand on this. It is regularly taught by Bible commentators that Beelzebul means Lord of the Flies. Probably many of you have heard this. In fact, within modern Christianity this is perhaps the most common teaching on this passage. This interpretation didn't actually occur until the early part of the 19th century and was the result of a book that was written by a Frenchman Jacques albine Simone Colin de Plancy. Boy, how about that for a name, huh? Well, this man was an occultist who was fascinated with demons, and he, and he wrote a book that caught the imagination of the European Christian community. It was called Dictionnaire Infernal, that is, the Infernal Dictionary. In it, he essentially charted out an entire realm. Of the demon world, complete with an elaborate system that operated on a hierarchy of many levels. And some 40 years after he first published that work, it was republished with lots of illustrations in it. And some of the illustrations depicted Satan and his demons having the ability to fly. And as a result of this, Satan and his demons became known as fliers, which a few years later became shortened to flies. It was not meant in the sense of pesky and dirty houseflies, but rather merely in the sense of beings that can fly. But as often happens, we get into the 20th century, the term flies indeed was assumed to mean houseflies, so there you have it. Beelzebub has transformed to mean the Lord of the Flies. Now this meaning has been incorporated into the Western Bible and the average Christian is none the wiser. See, now, I tell you this short anecdote not only to help you understand the actual meaning of verse 25, but also to demonstrate how over the centuries the, that occultism and paganism have crept into Christianity with few people recognizing it, but rather assuming because a theologian or a pastor speaks it, it must be correct. But now apply the same principle to the Jews over the 1st century. They too looked to their theologians and pastors, the priests and the scribes, for understanding but paganism and the occult had also gradually crept into the Hebrew faith, with few having any clue about it. Times we read of a frustrated Jesus just for this reason. Rather than being able to just put up a banner for everybody and say, hey, folks, your wait's over, your Messiah is here, and he is I. Kind of wonder sometimes why he didn't do that. See, he had to confront the traditions that had been taught and to dispute with those who taught them and to reteach the old and timeless truth of the Torah and the prophets before the meaning of his advent could be properly understood. Let those with ears hear. Now, in verse 26, Now that Jesus has shaken up His disciples with some words of warning, He offers some encouragement that the twelve need not be in fear of their critics and their persecutors. Why? Because as He goes on to say that what is covered will be uncovered and that what is secret will be revealed. Nothing and no one Can stop the message from being understood and from spreading. The subject matter of their evangelizing, now to this point, it is announcing the good news that the kingdom of heaven has arrived on earth, will go out and many are going to be enlightened and benefit from it, despite the disciples' worry that they may be failing. In the shot sense, this says that indeed many of the Jewish people will open their minds and believe the disciples that the Kingdom of Heaven has arrived. In the Remez sense, what the disciples will be doing are but the first baby steps into a centuries-long undertaking. Yeshua is speaking of the many mysteries Of the redemption process that are only beginning to open up for people to grasp, in the same way that a flower almost imperceptibly begins to slowly open its petals to finally reveal the beautiful, the wondrous pistil in its center, whereby reproduction can now occur. An important point here is that the disciples are not to judge with their eyes if they are succeeding or not. They are not to have an expectation of instant success. Their job is not to convert people, it is to speak the truth. And to speak that truth according to their current understanding, not what will be eventually revealed in the future. Thus, when Christ says that what is said in the dark needs to be spoken in the light, and what is whispered is to be openly spoken on the housetops, this does not mean that darkness or whispering in the way he's using it is in any way negative or even wicked. See, we're meant to picture Christ and his eager disciples sitting together in the evening, around a campfire maybe. His disciples listening and absorbing as their their Master teaches them. imagine it was like trying to drink from a fire hose. Whispering merely means that what He is teaching them has been done in private. So far, it's only been for them. but now that they have learned and they're prepared they're to take it out publicly they're to disperse it to all the jewish people this is the peshat sense of it the remez sense is that this applies to all would-be disciples of christ thus the peshat applies to before yeshua's resurrection when the message was explicitly only for israel But the remez applies to AFTER the Resurrection, when the message would now also be sent out to the entire Gentile world. Now, Verse 28 is familiar to nearly all believers. Do not fear is the message. Specifically, it is broaching the subject of death. And that it shouldn't be feared. See, the first thing to notice is how Yeshua speaks of, of the body and the soul as separate entities. So the death of the body does not also mean the death of the soul. Now, before we discuss body and soul, let's again talk about fear. Because due to the COVID 19 pandemic we are enduring, fear is running rampant including among Christians. See the English term fear is expressed by a number of Hebrew and Greek words in the Bible. They all have slightly different meanings, sometimes the difference between them is pretty hard to separate. And Another thing to understand is that when translating from the original language to English we have to be careful not to misunderstand. Because the same word can invoke different images and indicate different things in different eras. I will give you a prime example of this. In medieval times and earlier, the terms love and hate were often used on a political level. To love your king meant to be loyal to him, to hate your king meant to be disloyal, the term fear Was also used politically. To fear your king is the same as it means to fear your God. It means first and foremost, it points towards absolute loyalty, but to this meaning is usually added a sense of reverence, respect, and an acknowledgement that this person has true and legitimate power over you. Thus, to fear. And to be afraid were in bygone times quite different situations. To fear your king, then, is not the same as being afraid of your king. To be afraid of your king or of your God means to be in dread of him. So, with that said, what does it mean in verse 28 to not fear someone? who can kill your body, but DO fear someone who can kill your body and your soul. Now, the Greek word used in this case is phobio. That might sound familiar to you. Phobio. It's where we get the English term phobia. If we have a phobia of spiders, we certainly don't have loyalty and respect and reverence for them, But we do have a dread of them. Thus depending on your Bible translation, you might find the word AFRAID there, instead of FEAR, and I think AFRAID actually better captures the sense of it. Or to use the direct connection between the Greek phobio and the English phobia, do not have a phobia for those who can kill your body but DO have a phobia for those who can kill your body and your soul. Don't be in dread of those who can kill your body, but DO be in dread of somebody that can kill your body and your soul. There is no way that we cannot notice an element of possible martyrdom in Christ's words. Now, to the disciples Yeshua is saying they should not worry about being killed for their faith. It can happen. But if you wander around constantly afraid and in dread, you can't do your job properly. See, I remember in a very moving and hard-hitting TV series called A Band of Brothers that was about World War II. There were a number of interviews with survivors of a particularly particular Army unit of the 101st Airborne and one man spoke about being scared and he said that everyone was scared all the time, but that some people handled it better. That if one was too afraid then they couldn't function as a soldier must and that he was one that could handle the fear. Now This man was well aware he could die, he saw death all around him, and of course he hoped it wouldn't happen to him, yet he wasn't in dread of it each day that he awoke, he didn't have a phobia about it, so he could function. Wouldn't fall to pieces or shrink from the battlefield in order to do his dangerous job. I think this is a fairly good analogy of what Jesus is saying to the 12 and, frankly, to all of us. You know, as believers who are saved, Yeshua advises that we no longer have to fear death. Because the essence of who we are lives on in a very real way in our soul. We don't have to live in dread of a murderer, of a car accident, of a plane crash, or of a pandemic virus. A virus such as the one that has enveloped our globe It's serious and it indeed can under the right circumstances Kill our body, but it can never kill our soul. So, as believers, we don't have to be germophobic or maybe virophobic. Death comes to, us, comes to us all at some point. And there's no reason to dread it, even though none of us look forward to it. So, what should we have a phobia about? It should be about our soul being destroyed, says Christ. Or, as it is put in this verse, the same one who can kill the body also has the power to kill the soul. There is only one being that can kill the soul, God. So while we should never have a phobia about bodily death, we should definitely have a phobia about soul death, accompanied with a fear, a reverence, a respect, a loyalty to the ONLY ONE who can kill both, God. The final words of this verse speak about the body and soul being destroyed in Gehenna. Gehenna translates the, the, the Hebrew Gehenom. Gehenom. This is the Valley of Hinnom that runs through Jerusalem. You can go there today and visit it and see it. That valley was used in Jesus' time as a municipal trash dump. Every imaginable kind of refuse was thrown into it. It would have filled up pretty quickly, except they kept a fire burning in the trash to reduce it to ashes. And since animal carcasses, even body parts, were thrown in there, and at times entire corpses Whereas as well, one can only imagine the never-ending stench. To reduce the foul odors, sulfur was thrown in it. Thus, there was no more shameful, horrible thing that a Jewish person could imagine than having one's own dead body thrown into that garbage dump and burnt up along with every foul thing. Such a thing could only be viewed as a punishment of the worst order. Thus, Gehinnom was thought of by Jews in the same way Christians think of Hell. Now, What we see here in Matthew 10 is actually a glimpse into one stream of Jewish theology about death at that time and there were other streams of thought about it. And while there was no clear map about what happened to the soul after death, clearly there was the thought that the soul did live on outside of a deceased body, and yet the soul could be destroyed. There were those Jews who equated the horrors of Gehenom with what happens to departed souls after the general resurrection and the end of days when God judges them. The unrighteous would be thrown into Gehinnom. The theology of the bosom of Abraham was also in play at this time, and it was believed to be a chamber under the earth. Where the souls of the righteous dead reside. People who lived before Christ went to the cross, but were imputed with righteousness according to their trust in God. At least some of the righteous dead. And I am certain that this is exactly where Paul thought that Christ descended after his resurrection. Listen to, first of all, to Ephesians. Where Paul talks about this event. In Ephesians 4 4 through 10, there is one body and one spirit, just as when you were called, you were called to one hope. There is one Lord, one trust, one immersion, one God, the Father of us all, who rules over all, works through all, is in all. Each one of us, however, has been given grace to be measured by the Messiah's bounty. This is why it says, After he went up into the heights, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to mankind. Now this phrase, he went up, what can it mean if not that he first went down into the lower parts, that is, of the earth? The one who went down is himself the one who also went up far above all of heaven in order to fulfill all things. So is this a brand new thought? Paul? No. As he says in verse 8, this is why it says what it. So some writing he knows about says something he's about to quote, and that something comes from Psalm 68. Listen to Psalm 68, verses 18 to 20. God's chariots are myriads, repeated thousands. Adonai is among them in, as in Sinai in holiness. After you went up into the heights, you led captivity captive. You took gifts among mankind, yes, even among the rebels, so that Yah, God, might live there, might live there. Blessed be Adonai. Every day he bears our burden, does God our salvation. See, there are other mentions in this psalm about saving and about salvation. So it's a little wonder that Paul saw in Psalm 68 a prophecy about Messiah. And Paul, making Midrash on Psalm 68, says that since this messianic psalm says he went up, then logically Yeshua must first have gone down. And if he went down, where would he go? And why? He went down into the earth, says Paul. He made captivity captive. This strange phrase, made captivity captive, it operates, I think, like a double negative. That is, if a word is negative, and then you make a negative about the negative, it becomes a positive. If I say don't not shut the door, the two negatives don't not work together to cancel each other out and means the, makes the statement positive. In my example, don't not shut the door means shut the door. So to make captivity captive, two things we can take negatively, can only mean to cancel captivity. It's like taking the jailer of the captives and throwing him into prison, making him captive, so that all the prisoners can go free. And guess what? There's no one left to keep the others captive anymore. So, in the the case of Jesus descending into the earth post resurrection, Paul thinks he ended the captivity. Of whom? certainly not of the demons, so it had to be of the dead. But what dead? All dead? No, only of the righteous dead of Abraham's bosom that harbored only Israelites. Those who resided there could be released from their captivity that was used to shut them up in spiritual safety for a time. NOW they could go on to Heaven due to Christ's atoning death. At that moment Abraham's bosom was emptied out and it will forever remain empty, because Yeshua's death and resurrection made captive waiting pointless. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Okay. So, now Yeshua has offered a few different forms of encouragement to the disciples who have been told unequivocally that their mission is going to be fraught with dangers, with opposition, possible death. Verses 29-31 through offer another encouragement of a different kind. Along the same lines of, yes, you might get killed, but don't worry about it. Because your soul's gonna live on. Now we get something from Yeshua that more or less says, don't worry because God's watching. And nothing happens, it's not in His will. This is a reminder more than it is some new revelation, as this pretty well expresses an existing doctrine of the Jews. Whatever happens must be in God's will or He actually isn't in control, no matter how much we want to convince ourselves otherwise. Now, To demonstrate just how important these 12 are to God, Jesus draws an analogy. He says that as inexpensive as sparrows are to purchase, and as many millions or billions of them there are, not one sparrow dies. Falls to the ground, without God the Father allowing it. Now, most modern believers don't realize that the poor people among Israel regularly ate sparrows as food, because they were so plentiful, they were easy to catch, and therefore they were cheap to buy. Sparrows were perfectly kosher, and the pricing structure to buy sparrows at the market to use for food was, according to Matthew, two sparrows for an Assyrian. An Assyrian was a Roman coin that was worth about one-sixteenth of a denarius. One denarius was the standard pay for a day laborer. Luke gives a different value, five sparrows for two Assyrians, slightly cheaper. Nonetheless, by any standard, sparrows were plentiful. They carried a low value, so the poorest of Jews could afford them for meat. But as low in value as they are from the human perspective, every single sparrow matters to God, to the Father. In contrast with sparrows, God keeps humans under even closer observation and care. Verse 30 says that not only does God know each and every human, He counts and knows the number of hairs on each human's head. Now most commentators think, as I do, that this is a a Jewish expression, kind of a proverb. It probably falls along the lines of counting the stars in the sky or counting the grains of sand on the seashore, it's not meant that God, or perhaps, some of His angelic servants run around endlessly counting human hairs, rather, it's figurative of just how closely God keeps watch over His human creatures and how He knows each of us so perfectly well. And He knows our circumstances in such detail. See, I have a mental picture of a mother regularly taking her child over to the doorway and marking his or her height as she delights in every detail of her child growing and thriving. The logical conclusion to this? Don't be in fear. Because if God cares for sparrows so much, imagine how much He cares for you. Your value to Him's off the charts when compared to sparrows, each of which matters to him. Once again the Greek word Matthew chooses chooses for fear is phobio, a dread. So don't be phobic over the many bad things that could happen to you but equally likely won't happen. And yet, just under the surface is the meaning that perhaps the disciples don't know what might happen to them, or why something bad does happen, but rest assured, the Holy One who cares even for the tiniest birds places immense value on every human life. A scary or tragic or unjust event is not the signal that God has lost interest in you. It is only that as human beings our minds cannot possibly fathom God's plans and His ways. Perhaps one of the greatest problems in all of Christianity comes from this common question from believers and non-believers alike, why do bad things happen to good people if there is a loving God and He loves us? Invariably, a pastor or a rabbi tries to help make a victim or a victim's friends and relatives make sense of it in order to comfort them. I'd like to tackle this question very briefly, but likely cause some unintended offense to someone hearing this who's suffered greatly. My apologies up front for this. To the non-believer, this question is meant to challenge God's very existence. But for the believer, the very thought, let alone asking it out loud, of, questioning, about, of God, questioning God about why He allows what He allows is an indication of our obvious disagreement with it. This attitude can only come from a lack A personal faith and trust in God. One doesn't have to live very long to learn that not only do bad things happen to good people but also good things to very bad people, which can be equally disconcerting. In the Targum of Job We read, you cannot understand the things with which you have grown up. (laughs) So how can your mind comprehend the way of the Most High? The problem of evil, something Christ was dealing with as He was talking with His disciples, was something the ancients of most cultures and religions faced. Of course the first thing one had to do was to define what was evil but also to define what a good person amounted to. Biblically a good person is one thing only, a righteous God-worshipper. That's a good person. The thing that followers of Yeshua must always keep in mind is that while the here and now matters greatly in our lives and to God, our Savior makes it clear that it is the eternal future that matters even above that. His statement in chapter 10 about fearing not Him who can kill only our body, but rather Him who can kill our body and soul is what makes this point. Despite all appearances, no matter what the circumstance or the outcome, as worshipers of the God of Israel we must live our lives resolved that number 1 every human life matters to him and 2 everything that happens good or bad does not escape his gaze nor is it outside of his will we must finally learn to be as Job. Stop fretting, stop questioning, stop doubting. We must admit to ourselves that no amount of education, no amount of religious degrees, no amount of our goodness, or of our earthly wisdom, or our public adulation, is ever Going to give us the ability as mere humans to fathom the depths of God. We must have faith, which means to observe, to trust, and to demand no satisfying explanation that meets with our preconceived perceptions. We'll continue in Matthew 10 next time.